This summer, we've been working through a series that I've entitled, The Greatest Stories Ever Told. We're looking at some of the parables of Jesus. Yes, dismissing the kids again. So I'd forgotten the first service as well. Because one of my opening lines is, is, misery loves company, and they should have to stay here and suffer with you guys, right? All right. So this morning, our text, um, focusing on the, the greatest stories ever told, take us to a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 5. And if you are using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 872. That's 872, and you probably need to go by the page numbers because at the top it says Luke 3.16, and it should say Luke 5.16. So you, you might not find Luke chapter 5, so look for page 872. And the events that we're going to look at today are also recounted to us for in Matthew chapter 9 and also in Mark chapter 2 and here again in Luke chapter 5. And, and there's one particular difference that we're going to see at the very end and I'm going to try to draw out a little bit later in our message, but there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the midst of all of this. And, and part of that is, is this old adage that misery loves company is really active in what's going on in the life of Jesus at this moment. Not that he's looking to share his misery with others, but that other people around him who were really, in many ways, miserable in their journey are trying to draw him into that. And earlier in Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals the paralytic. Some of you remember this story from your childhood days in Sunday school or whatever where this, these four friends carry this paralytic, a guy who can't walk to Jesus, and, and they get there and he's lying on a pallet. They can't get through the crowd, so they go up on the roof and they lower him through the roof. They literally peel away the... the the thatch roof that they have, and they lower him down right in front of Jesus. And when he lands in front of Jesus, Jesus looks at him, and the first thing he says to him, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, the religious leaders who were there in the room, they just throw a hissy fit. They, they're like, oh, what are you, only God forgives forgive sins. You claim it to be God, what's up? And they're just angry. Well, Jesus said, well, you know, I could say, friend, forgive your sins, and you couldn't tell if I did or didn't. So is it easier or harder for me to say to him, friend, rise up and walk? And so he commands the paralytic to rise up and to walk. And the paralytic, this man who's been paralyzed, is healed. And he goes out and everybody's down. They just cannot believe what they have seen. As Jesus leaves that place, he looks out from the from the little community in Capernaum, and there's a, there's a very busy road just on the outskirts of the community, which is just off the lake of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, and, and he sees a tax collector out there by the name of Levi. We also know him as Matthew, right? He wrote the Gospel of Matthew, and, and Jesus looks at him, and, and he says, you know, I want you to follow me. Come follow me. Come, come be one of my disciples, and, and he is just overjoyed. And what do you do when you're, when you're overjoyed? He wants to throw a party. So, so he invites all of his friends to his house for this huge party. And so Jesus comes to the party. Matthew's there. All of his friends are there. And the religious leaders are kind of hanging around the edges. And they're grabbing the disciples. And they say, what is up with your teacher? He's hanging out with all these sinners. You know, doesn't he know that he's going to be contaminated by them? He's not going to be good anymore. Why, why is he hanging out with the godly people? And Jesus responds and says, you know what? It's not the healthy people who need a physician. It's the sick people. 
And that's why I've come. I've come to, to be with those who are spiritually unhealthy. I've come to those who are isolated from God. I've come to be a physician to those who are sick. And well, I said, well, uh, well, beyond that, I mean, we fast all the time. The Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, every single week. You know, they fasted two days a week. The disciples of John the Baptist had picked up the law the same. They're, they're part of their idea of purifying themselves from sins and calling out to God in earnestness to forgive them from sin was, was to fast, was to discipline their bodies, to be in control and all that stuff. And John the Baptist's group had picked that up as well. I, I personally think they preferred not to eat at all than to eat locusts. So they just didn't eat a couple days a week. But, but others they say that they were really fasting, you know. And uh, I've never eaten locust, and it's not on my bucket list. So, you know, and, and Jesus says, well, he replies to them, he says, you know, it's not appropriate for the celebrants, those who are participating in the party, to fast while the bridegroom, while the, while the wedding is still going on. You know, in the days of Jesus, it was a little different than the way we do weddings, right? Now people have a ceremony, then they have a reception, then they go to a hotel that they tell nobody that they're going to, right? And then they go off on a honeymoon for a week or two. Um, Jesus' day was a lot different. You had the wedding ceremony, you had a big party, and then you, as the bride and groom, had an open house for an entire week. And people just came whenever they wanted, all week long. And Jesus is saying, well, you know, while, while you're having your open house, it's not appropriate to be fasting. You know, and, and while he's here with open doors, the presence of God is literally with them in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not appropriate to be fasting, but the day will come. But all of this, the forgiveness of sins that's going to be available, the healing that's going to come, the change in the, in, in, in the whole thing about fasting and God, how God reaches out to sinners, all of that introduces an issue that a significant challenge to the people of Jesus' day, and i got to tell you, it's as great a challenge to us today. And that is the whole issue of spiritual change. And he tells them this parable. Two parables, actually, beginning with verse 36. And I'd love for you to follow along in your Bibles. So he, he's been... All, all of this conflict about fasting and being with sinners and how does God really heal people and the presence of God, who has the authority, all, get all these issues that are focusing in on what God, the fact that God is doing something new in Christ, and it highlights, it brings to the surface the fact that change, spiritual change, is really difficult. Our teens this past week were focused on going deeper. That was the theme of Crosswalk. What does it take to go deeper with God? I, I got to tell you, an underlying message in all that is, you can't go deeper if you don't change. You can't. You can't go deeper if you don't change. So look at these stories that Jesus tells. So he tells them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. You've got to remember, in the days of Jesus, garments, clothes, were a precious possession. You know, some of you remember the story of Elisha and Naaman and Gehazi, you know, um, uh, Elisha's servant, Gehazi. You know, there was this general in the army of Aram who had leprosy. He had a skin disease. 
And through one of his servants, he learned that there was a prophet in Israel who might be able to heal him. So he comes to Israel with a letter from the king of Aram saying, here's my servant, I want you to heal him. And he brought this huge present to be given to the prophet. 750 you know, pieces of gold and so many pieces of silver. And it says, and he brought 10 garments with him. Because garments, clothes, were a precious commodity. I mean, you didn't run to Walmart and pick up a new t-shirt. You know, we got out in Rescom and we wanted to guarantee it wouldn't rain. So Richard and I went and bought rain suits because we didn't have any, right? You know, because we were working underneath the eaves of the building. We got soaked one day. Started raining the next day. We ran down there and bought them, came back, and it never rained again. No, actually, it rained a little bit. But, you know, you just don't run out and buy something because it, it just didn't work that way. A lot of people, the, the piece of garment they wore, they wore it for years. It, it was one of the most expensive things that they bought. And so you have a garment that develops a rip in it. You just don't toss it out and start over again. You know, and certainly you didn't buy them that way like we do today, right? You pay extra for them to put the rips in your clothes beforehand. I, I don't get that, sorry. I just may be old, but I just don't get that. But anyway, you know, you, you didn't buy them that way. You didn't wear them that way. So, so how are you going to fix it? And Jesus says, well, if you go over to another piece of cloth that's brand new and you cut a piece off and you, put it, and you sew it in, as you wear it, as you wash it, etc., it's not only going to look different, but over a period of time it's going to begin to shrink because they didn't have pre-shrunk cotton, you know, and it's just going to create a huge tear. And so not only are you going to ruin the other piece of cloth, but the piece that you put it on, it's going to look worse than it did before. It just doesn't work that way. It reminded me of an experience that Christina and I had when we were in Texas. You know, when we were in seminary, we, and she was going to the University of North Texas, we had a, an apartment. When she actually graduated from school and got a job, we moved one apartment over from the one bedroom to the two bedroom. And I was still commuting to Fort Worth from Denton. And those are facts you don't need to know. Anyways, we're living in this apartment. And, and I, when I was in Texas, I adopted the way of Texans. So I wore cowboy boots. I wore them like 350 days a year. I mean, just all the time, you know? And I got used to them, and you could always hear me coming because they just clomp, 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 you know, just going along. But, you know, you're, you, every once in a while, you've got to polish the boots. But on cowboy boots, you have a really big heel. So every once in a while, you have to, while you have to kind of restain them. So one Saturday, I'm there at the house, and I'm, and I'm sitting in the middle of the living room, which is a door room you come into, you know, you have two bedrooms, the living room and the kitchen. That's all we had, right? I'm sitting in the middle of the living room on the floor, and I'm doing my boots. And the dye that you put on the heels comes in a little thing, and you, you know, you unscrew the thing, you pull it out, it's got like a little cotton ball on the end, right? You know, and you rub it onto the heel and that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm doing it, and, and I'm watching, I think I'm watching college football or whatever's on the thing. And somehow or another, and I think it was my wife's fault, the, the, the ink got knocked over. So Right smack dab in the middle of our living room, you had this like 18-inch square, big, huge brown spot from the ink, you know, just whoosh, everywhere. You know, and I'm thinking, that looks awful. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, on top of that, they're going to have to replace the whole carpet, you know, in the, in the, in the thing. So I, I go down to the management office, and I'm talking to them, and said, you know, I spilled some ink, it looks terrible, you're going to have to fix it, whatever. So what, do you have to replace the whole thing? No, 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 we can take care of it. So we come home a few days later, and they had fixed it. But what they had done is that they had gone into our bedroom, into one of the closets, and they cut out a piece that fit, right? So you walk in the door, and the brown spot's gone, but that doesn't mean you can't tell where the hole was. 
I mean, you take this new carpet that hadn't been walked on, wasn't dirty, hadn't faded from the sun, all nine yards, and it's smack dab now in the middle of our living room. And I got to tell you, it'll look just as bad as the ink spot did. Because you look at the rest of the carpet and say, oh, that's what it used to look like. You know, it just stood out like that. You know, it just doesn't work that way, right? It just doesn't work that way. Jesus goes on and continues the story. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put into fresh wineskins. We're going to get there in just a moment. You know, this is probably not a struggle that you and I have, right? You know, we, we don't, we're not putting up our fresh wine and wineskins. But in the old days, back before they had plastic bottles they could pour everything into, or they had wooden cases or whatever, and I guess now you can buy your wine right in a box, cardboard box or something, you know. Before, before all those days, what they did, would they would take new wine and they would put it into animal skins that they had sewn together tightly and sealed. And, and you know, when, when leather's new, it's, it's supple, it's soft, it's stretchy, it's flexible, right? And so they would put the new wine in there, and then as the wine would age, it would ferment, and it would let off gases, and the whole thing would expand, and, and after a while, it, it would kind of get to what you wanted wine to be like. But as the leather aged, it would get harder, it would get less flexible, and it couldn't expand anymore. So what Jesus is talking about is here's somebody who has used up all the wine that was in the wineskin, and they go and they put new wine into it. Now the leather is not flexible. It's hard. It's crusty. I mean, I'm driving my son's car out here today, and, and um, it's a 1997, so it's 18 years old, right? And it's got leather seats. And it's worn in a few places. It's cracked everywhere. You know, the leather just kind of gets hard over a period of time, and it starts cracking and et cetera. You know, so you put the new wine into the old wineskin, and, and the leather now is hard, it's inflexible, and as, it, as the wine begins to ferment and as it gives off the gases or whatever, it just creates so much pressure, it just bursts. You know, it just, it just explodes. And so not only have you ruined the wineskin, you lost all the wine. He said, you, you just don't do that. You just don't do that. And he says, no. He said, if you're gonna say, but you've got to take new wine, and you're going to do it in fresh wineskins. In other words, if you're going to embrace what God is doing new, you've got, you got to be open to a whole new way of doing faith. But then he points out a problem. And this is where Luke is unique. Because we don't get this in Matthew. We don't get this in Mark. He says, and no one after drinking old wine wants new because it says the old is better. He said, there is just an innate instinct on our part to hold on what we have rather than to embrace what's new that God's trying to give us. We'd rather hold on to the old than to embrace the new that God is trying to give us. Now, there's all kinds of pieces that are going in here because, you know, that, that there's the idea that, that the Old and New Testament are all built upon salvation by faith, but in the Old Testament, that faith was exercised, it was driven towards, it was focused on works, on obeying the law and doing all the stuff that God wants us to do. And, and then along comes Jesus where the faith is focused on the work that He has done and the grace that is brought to us. And somehow you're trying to put all of that together and it's just not going to mix. It's like putting old wine, new wine into old wineskins or having, putting a big patch. It doesn't work that way. You have to be open to approaching God to a, in a brand new way. And we could go into lots of discussions as commentators 
love to do with this particular uh, parables about the old Israel and the new Israel and how they're different, they don't fit together and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and to tell you the truth, you know, I don't know if that's all that profitable for the vast majority of us to have that discussion, but I think there are a couple of great truths that we need to pull out today from this text. One of those is this. God's activity is always going to produce change. The activity of God always produces change. And if we're not open to changing, if we're not embracing changing, if we're not expecting to change, if we're not actually changing, then the activity of God is going to get thwarted in our lives. And the result really is going to be that not only, one, we won't enjoy our faith the way we should, but also in the midst of that, we're not going to be able to enjoy our sin the way we would. God's activity always produces... God, God is a God of change. It's interesting that the God who never changes is always a God who's changing in the world. He's changing... He's driving human history through a journey to a destination that He's got planned for it. And that... Activity always produces change. In our lives, personally, God is at work, he's, he's, and He's trying to change us into the image of His Son through the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. It's always about change. And you just see huge examples of that, right, in the Scriptures. All the, all the people that would come to your mind as people in your life who are, who are huge giants of the faith, they are all people who went through tremendous change. Abraham. Just a, just, just a, first he's a businessman in Iran, and then later he's a, he's a nomadic kind of herdsman, and God grows him to be the father of a nation. Moses, an adopted child, stuck between two cultures, a fugitive from justice, becomes the lawgiver in the name of God. Tremendous change. David, this brash young boy, right? You know, and God shapes this shepherd boy into a valiant warrior who brings glory to the kingdom. Amos, you know, some of you probably never even read the prophet Amos. You know, he's just a shepherd. He's a, in his other part-time job is to, to bruise a fruit that grows on a sycamore tree in just the right way so that it will ripen right and that kind of stuff. And and God rises him up to be a prophet, and he's just a prophet for three or four weeks, and then he just disappears. But in those three or four weeks, he gets the attention of the nation. Change. Peter, the bold, burly, impulsive fisherman that God transforms into a, a courageous, fearless apostle. Paul, the persecutor of the church, who becomes the one who is most persecuted because he's a part of the church. The activity of God always produces change, individually and corporately. You know, you could go and read Galatians chapter 5, and, and it talks about the fact that God isn't, this, this change that we're talking about, is, it's not just incremental change. God, God's not just trying to tweak us a little bit. God's trying to transform us. He's, he's saying, you know, put away all sexual immorality and promiscuity and carousing, etc., dissension and and, and anger and strife and all that kind of, put all that stuff aside, all that is behind, that's all the stuff that goes with the old wineskins, and you put the new wine into a new wineskin that's marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
self-control. Those two things aren't even the same zip code. God is trying to change everything. And that's the kind of change that he invites us into. Not just, not just incremental change, not just, not just tweaking it, not just like remodeling the room, putting some new paint up, put the furniture in a different position. He's talking about blowing it up and starting over again. Doing something new, because the two just aren't compatible with one another. You know, I, I think this is a struggle congregationally for a lot of churches. You know, um, when I was doing denominational work, there were many churches that, that they just couldn't understand why they weren't growing, but at the same time, their perspective was, we like our church just the way it is. Why won't other people come to it? We don't want our church to change. We just want people to come to what we like. Instead of being focused on what does it take for us to take the timeless, unchanging message of God and communicate it and live it out in such a way that other people are drawn to it. And that might not even be something that we like. God's activity always produces change. And if you and I are open expecting, embracing, anticipating, even in some ways cultivating significant change in our lives, the, boy, i got to tell you, the, the, the activity of God is just going to get bottlenecked inside of us. New wine should be put into fresh wineskins. But 30, verse 39 highlights the truth for us. And that is that Change is hard for us. Or maybe said in a different way, there, there is in some ways an innate, a built-in reluctance to change in our lives. You look at verse 39, it says, no one after drinking old wine wants new, because he says the old is better. And, and there, there is in us this natural tendency just to want to resist change. And with that, there can be a natural tendency within us to want to resist the activity of God in our lives because it always brings change. It always brings change. You know, you get, there's probably a whole host of, of reasons why we're resistant to change. Some of us, we just don't believe we need to change. I'm good enough. What I do is okay. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a, a good member of my family. I'm a good employee or I'm a good employer. I, and I'm, I'm better than these people down here. I might not be quite as good as them, but I'm just good enough, and I don't need to change, and that's just who I am. And there's a reluctance to change. Some of us recognize from experience or through anticipation that change is hard work. Change is hard work. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's just hard work. You know, you ever been around somebody who tries to stop smoking? hard work. I knew one guy, you know, he, 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 he had smoked for years and years and years, had wanted to quit for a long time, actually got into a place where he hadn't had a cigarette like in eight to ten weeks. And he was so craving cigarettes and et cetera, and his wife was aware of it, she, she hid his car keys so he couldn't go to the store to buy a pack. And he started walking. Change can be hard. We know it can be hard. Right? And because of this, I don't want anything to do with that. Sometimes change is hard because we know it's going to bring loss, a sense of loss in our lives. 
You know, we, we know that, you know what, if I, if I really change into the person that God wants me to be, I might not have this experience that some of my friends have said is really cool. Or I might lose some of my friends because they don't want to hang out with me anymore. And, it, and there's a sense of, of a fear of loss that can enter in. You know, I, you know, it, it, it can, I know several stories. So some of you are, are aware of the fact that in the early years of, of our Good Rain ministry, we were actively connected with a, a pastor from southern New Hampshire who's since retired. And he's actually started his own ministry to Rwanda, working through a lot of the same networks as us called Rwanda Challenge. But he went to this little church just outside of Manchester, New Hampshire, Candy in New Hampshire, like 25 years ago. When he got there, the church was about 150 people, just a good, stable church. Not, not really kind of grown, but not the client, just good, good job teaching the Word, all that kind of stuff. And, and he came in, and he was there for two or three years, and, and they were really looking at some things and seeing the ministry opportunities around them. And, and he and some of the leadership really felt like the church needed to go through significant change. And they began to implement the changes. And the church went from 150 to 50. Went backward by two-thirds. And a lot of people left because they just didn't want to lose what they had. Then the church grew to 1,500. But we fear loss. We, we, we fear we're going we're to lose what we like, you know, that, that many of the churches that have missed the wave of impact, I mean, the gospel, and it's clearly evident in our region, the gospel, when it produces fruit, it produces a harvest, there should be growth. And i got to tell you from a pastor from this side of the pulpit, that's, that, this is something that really burdens me right now. For the most part, the last three years, we've been plateaued. Our attendance has been, you know, we've gone up a little bit, down a little bit, but we've pretty much been in the same vicinity for the last three years. And, you know, there's some things in there. We planted the church and some other stuff, and that explains some of it and those kinds of things. But, but it, 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 boy, the gospel should produce more than that. And, and, and a concern that I have is, is that maybe we really don't have the appetite for risk. Maybe we don't have the appetite for change that we once did. And because of that, we're not really seeing the harvest. Maybe we'll, we, there's a sense that we, we, we have that we might lose what we got if we really try to reach all those who are still need to be reached around us. There can be this fear of a sense of loss or a sense of loss. You know, there can be fear that goes with change. We don't know where the future is going to take us. And I've got to tell you, at some point along the way, we, sometimes we just don't want to change. We just get fatigued. Life is just so full of changes, right? Changes we can't control. Our kids grow up, they cost us more money. Then they move out and they cost us even more money. You know, it just, you know, it just stuff changes, right? We get older, our hair falls out, our waistlines grow. With, stuff just changes. A lot of stuff we can't control. And so when it comes to stuff we can't control, so I don't want to do it. Forget it. What are you laughing at, Scott, right? <laughs> It just relax. You know, we get frustrated with it all. We say, "That's it. This is the one area of my life I can control. I ain't doing it." And we don't want to change. But make no make. make let's make this crystal clear. God, God doesn't say, "I'm going to work in you to change, and you can manage it." God doesn't say that. God says, "I'm going to work in you to change. You got to get out of the way. I'm going to give you a new garment." 
I'm going to give you new wine to put into new wineskins. So we have a couple of options, I think, as we think about this kind of message today. Some of us are just going to say, you know what, I don't want to change. I, don't, I, I know what God's asking. Maybe I don't know what God's asking, but I just don't want to hear it anyways. And we're just going to say, that's it, I'm done. And there may be a few here today that are in that scenario. Others of us, we think we're just creative enough and just innovative enough and just entrepreneurial enough that we can actually figure out how to put a new garment patch onto an old garment. That somehow or another, maybe we won't fill the old wineskin completely full. We'll leave some room in it for the new wine to expand. Maybe it won't burst. We, we try to find a way around all of this. I think that's what Jesus really talks about when he talks about the thorny soil in the parable of the sower. The seed gets planted, it grows up, but it doesn't really produce any fruit because it gets crowded out by all the other stuff that we've kept in the old wineskin. Or, the real opportunity for us is to say, you know what? I'm going to embrace all the activity that God wants to do in me and experience what that new wine can really be all about. And that's what my real prayer is for us today. Individually and congregationally. That where God says it's time to change, we say, sign me up. Sign me up. Let's pray together. Just take a minute. It's in an area of your life that you know that God's been asking you to change. Perhaps it's in an attitude. Perhaps it's in a perspective. Maybe it's some behavior or action. What has God been asking you to change? Maybe it's a spiritual discipline. Maybe it's something to do about prayer or reading the Bible or being in a life group or whatever. What has God been asking you to change? Are you still trying to be good enough for God or have you really just poured yourself out and said, I need a Savior. I need somebody to forgive me and to lead me. And once you've identified that, ask yourself this question. What does the evidence say? Am I open to change or not? God, I, I hope I can pray confessionally for all of us today. We don't want just the new patch to go on the garment. We want all the new clothes that you can give us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.